The sunlight gleams off the iron plating covering the odd contraption pressed up against the walls of the city. Underneath this mechanical monster of wood and metal, men dig at the foundations, removing mounds of earth and propping the excavated tunnel up with beams of wood. From above, the city's defenders shoot arrows, fling stones, and even pour buckets of oil and grease lit on fire. But these are all deflected by the thick bombardment screen as the men beneath it eat away at the battlements like human termites. All throughout the day, the men toil away, sweat dripping down their faces. As the sun begins to set, they fill the tunnel in with branches and split logs, kindling. They light the wood on fire, and cries of ecstatic joy ring out as the tower before them begins to crumble and collapse. It's far from entirely destroyed, but a small, dangerous-to-navigate breach has been opened. Night falls and the men slowly retreat back to the camp. Tomorrow, they topple the wall entirely. Tomorrow, they break through. Tomorrow, the Crusaders take Nicaea. Morning comes, and as the Crusaders rise to continue their assault, their hearts fall in their chests. Where once there was a breach, now there is once more immovable stone. The Turks had worked through the night, filling in the hole and shoring up their defenses. What hope is there of taking such an impregnable city? An entire day of work bringing down one small tower, undone in a single night. The men's spirits weaken, and no one is willing to lead the charge for another day of fruitless torture. Until one man stands forward. A nameless Norman knight, indistinguishable from any other, rendered anonymous by the thick helmet obscuring his face, runs out of the camp, across the ditch, and towards the tower. Immediately, arrows begin to fly. The knight raises his shield in defense. Then come the stones. As they crash against the knight's shield, he races forward. As he grows closer, the Turks begin to hurl javelins towards him. As he reaches the wall, he begins to remove the stones that had been placed during the night. But how can he, with only one arm, as all manner of bombardment falls upon his head? He looks back. He is alone. No one has followed his charge. Instead, they watch from a distance as he presses himself up against the wall to avoid the deluge. But he cannot avoid it for long. The weight of stone becomes far too much to bear until finally, one heavy boulder snaps his neck in two. He falls to the ground, dead. But his compatriots are still motionless. They dare not approach the walls for fear of meeting the same fate. Indeed, they are still motionless, as the Turks lower a chain affixed to a grasping iron claw of ingenious artifice. They are still motionless as the hooks dig into the rings of the knight's chainmail. They are still motionless as his corpse is lifted up the wall and brought into the tower. And they are still motionless as the Turks strip the knight of his armor, tie a noose to his neck and dangle his brutalized corpse 
from the ramparts. Hello and welcome to History of the Ultramar, episode 2.21. Guess who's back? Which, in part, is me. I'm back. I'm alive. And I'm back on track. I caught the flu, was sick for a few weeks, and then I had a bunch of work shit to catch up on, but the show's back on the road. I also want to mention that I somehow temporarily removed the audio for episode 2.19 and replaced it with the audio for 2.20. I have since fixed it, so you should be able to hear 2.19 once more. I'm not sure how this happened, whether it was something I did or a glitch, probably something I did. But I'll be keeping an eye on it for the future. However, I'm not the only one who's back, because today, the Sultan of Room, Keely Jarslin, is forced once again to grapple with what he probably assumed were weird Roman mercenaries. Holy war of this zealous nature was not really something you would have understood. And that's unfortunate for him, because his decisions in May and June of 1097 would end up costing him the jewel of his little sultanate of Rome, the city of Nicaea. Now, to understand Nicaea, we have to understand the context of how Kilij Arslan had come into possession of the city in the first place. As we talked about at length last season, notably in episodes 1.11, 1.12, and 1.16, the Turks of Anatolia had come to power in the vacuum between the larger Seljuk Empire and the Byzantine Empire. Kilij Arslan's legitimacy came from two main sources his blood ties to the Seljuk clan, and the alliances he and his father had made with various Byzantines. In the case of the cities of western Anatolia, including Nicaea, they had usually been invited in by the Byzantines. They hadn't really conquered much of anything. And that's why their forces weren't up to the task of really defending these cities in the face of a concerted attack. The Turks would end up removed from various of their western strongholds, including Iconium, Heraclea, and of course, Nicaea. But of these, only Nicaea was actually defended. The rest were basically abandoned as the Crusaders swept through the area. But Nicaea was important for various reasons. It was, strategically, the cornerstone of Byzantium, or rather the Sultanate of Rum, in western Anatolia. It was an important cultural center. Today, Iznik is a small Turkish city of only around 15,000 people, dwarfed by the largest European city, Istanbul, some 90 kilometers away. But in its heyday, Nikaya, as it was known in Greek, was the jewel of Anatolia. In 325 AD, it played host to the first ecumenical universal council. When the Roman Emperor Constantine brought together bishops from all over Christendom to hammer out the Nicene Creed and establish Catholic Orthodox Christianity. Kilij Arslan seems to have recognized its importance as well, because he made the city his capital, and it became his primary residence, as well as that of his wife, children, and his treasury. So Nicaea was important to Alexios Komnenos because taking it would cause Seljuk defenses in the region to crumble, and maybe even give him some leverage over Kilij Arslan. And it was important to the Crusaders because part of their mission was to aid the Greeks, 
and also because the city was an important religious center. Well, and taking it was also essential to making sure they didn't get ambushed from behind while on their way across Anatolia. So considering all this, how the heck were the Crusaders able to set up around it without getting attacked? While Danny kind of forgot about the Iron Fleet and Euron's forces, they certainly haven't forgotten about her. Well, Kilij Arslan kind of forgot about the Crusaders. Kilij had other shit to deal with. We talked about this back in Season 1, but it wasn't like he had a very well-established state or anything. He'd only come to power five years earlier in 1092 after years as his cousin's hostage. And as I mentioned, his rule hung in the balance between the two great powers on either edge of Anatolia. But he was far from the only opportunistic nomadic raider in the region. Right on his eastern border, the Danishmens of central Anatolia seem to have had some sort of ties to the pre-Manzikert Byzantine governors or Armenian elites of the region, and may have merged the existing power structures with new Muslim Turkic arrivals. Not too unlike the merger we talked about in episode 2.1 between the Romans of Gaul and the Germanic Franks. Kilij Arslan and the Danishmans were in a somewhat constant state of conflict, raiding each other and trying to secure dominion over the very fluid border between them. Kilij also had concerns farther east. For one thing, just a couple years earlier, his cousin, the great Seljuk Sultan Malik Shah, had died, throwing the empire into a succession crisis. Kilij might have felt some sort of desire to interfere. Maybe not necessarily to seize the throne for himself or anything, but to work out some sort of arrangement with the new great sultan. We have no written records from Kilij Arslan, nor anyone close to him, so it's hard to know what exactly his strategy consisted of at the time. But it seems Madud was busy fighting with the Danishmans on his eastern border around Melatine, and he figured he dealt with the bozos at Zeragordos and Civitat. He had even made a show of it to discourage any further Frankish interference. Latin eyewitness historian Fulcher of Chartre recounts the grisly scene they came across on the route to Nicaea. Quote, Oh, how many severed heads and bones of the dead lying on the plains did we find beyond Nicomedia near that sea? In the preceding year, the Turks destroyed those who were ignorant of and new to the use of the arrow. Moved to compassion by this, we shed many tears there. Uh, honestly, if Kilij had waited around, he could have dealt with the various crusading armies as they approached Nicaea in much the same way as he dealt with the Peasants' Crusade. Instead, the independent units of the army had weeks to maneuver themselves into position around Nicaea. They certainly haven't forgotten about her. As I mentioned in episode 2.19, Godfrey's forces were first to head that way. They joined up with Tancred's forces, as well as the remainder of the Peasants' Crusade. All of these groups arrived at Nicaea on May 6th, at which point, presumably, word was sent to Kilij Arslan. This force camped out, undefended and unsupplied, for eight days. Again, if Kilij had attacked them then, they would have met the same fate as the Peasants' Crusade. Instead, eight days later, on May 14th, Bohemond arrived, having arranged the supply chain from Constantinople. As we've talked about a few times, it was pretty clear that despite Anna's complaints about him, Bohemond was, at the time, a crucial mediating force between the Crusaders and the Roman Emperor. Speaking of the Roman Emperor, what was Alexios up to at this time? 
Well, the Latin sources all make a point of mentioning that Alexios did not personally join the siege, hinting that this may have been their expectation. He was supposed to be the glorious leader of this expedition. Instead, he posted up at Pelicanum, not far from Nicomedia, to await news of what the Franks found at Nicaea. There were myriad reasons why Alexios would have chosen not to accompany the army in person. One, there was no reason to trust them. These crazy psychos had already attacked his capital. It would have been the height of insanity to place himself in their midst. And two, this allowed him at least the facade of uninvolvement. Unlike the Crusaders, Alexios had no desire to wipe the Seljuks off the face of the earth. He had worked with them before and was likely expecting to have to work with them again in the future. His was not a holy war. It was just one facet of the scramble for Anatolia. The Seljuks were his neighbors. Kili Jarslin's father had been his ally against Bohemond's father, and there was no reason to assume a similar arrangement would be advantageous in the future. Alexios also had some experience with how the Crusaders dealt with captured cities. Nicaea was still a predominantly Roman city. Its inhabitants were almost all Romans of Christian faith. The Crusaders had already shown that they had no issue putting their fellow Christians to the sword. So if they gained control of the city, it would be better for Alexis's public image if he wasn't seen at the head of the army that burnt it to the ground and killed nearly everyone inside, as they had already done at Zemun, for example. But again, this was a facade of uninvolvement. He gave the Crusaders vital support. He set up the supply chain from Constantinople to Civitat to the Crusader camps outside Nicaea. And he also provided some troops. His trusted general, Manuel Butumitis, had accompanied Godfrey in early May. Butumitis has shown up a couple times already, and it seems he was also authorized uh, to negotiate on behalf of the combined Crusader-Byzantine force. By mid-May, after Bohemond's arrival, it seems he was actually invited in by the governor of Nicaea to arrange a surrender. Anakomnini relates the story in the following way. Quote, the barbarians inside the city, meanwhile, sent repeated messages to the sultan asking for help. But he was still wasting time, and as the siege had already gone on for many days, from sunrise right up to sunset, their condition was obviously becoming extremely serious. They gave up the fight, deciding that it was better to make terms with the emperor than to be taken by the Celts. Under the circumstances, they summoned Butumitis, who had been promising in a never-ending stream of letters that this or that favor would be granted by Alexios, if they only surrendered to him. He now explained, in more detail, the emperor's friendly intentions and produced written guarantees. He was gladly received by the Turks, who had despaired of holding out against the overwhelming strength of their enemies. It was wiser, they thought, to cede Nicaea voluntarily to Alexios and share in his gifts than to become the victims of war to no purpose. Butumitis had not been in the city more than two days before Isangelis arrived. Determined to make an attempt on the walls without delay, he had siege engines ready for the task. Meanwhile, a rumor spread that the Sultan was on his way. At this news, the Turks, inspired with courage again, at once expelled Putumitis. End quote. Celts, of course, is how Anna refers to the Franks, and Isangelis is how Anna refers to Raymond of Sanji. 
Inviting Putumitis in, by the way, may have just been an attempt to play for time. Because the Turkish garrison of Nicaea had relatively little to fear. Nicaea? Nicaea was a hard nut to crack. So let's get some geography out of the way. Feel free to pull up Google Maps because it makes it a bit easier to visualize. Now, Civitat was a fortress in the region of Helenopolis. That is around Hersek in modern Turkey. Hersek is H-E-R-S-E-K. It's right on the southern edge of a little inlet of the Sea of Marmara. To the south, you will find Iznik Gölü. I think I'm pronouncing that right. That's Turkish for Lake Iznik, which in Greek was known as Lake Ascania. And right on the eastern edge of the lake, you'll find Iznik, surrounded by hilly grasslands. The lake blocked off the city's western border, and five-kilometer-long walls bordered the northern, southern, and eastern edges. The walls were more than 10 meters tall, and over a hundred towers spread out along the fortifications, armed with deadly ballistae. Big deal, you might say. No need to storm the walls, just starve the residents out, and they'll cave. Here's the thing, though. Remember that big-ass lake? Take a look at it again on Google Maps. That thing is impossible to surround or patrol effectively. So to resupply the city, all the Turkmen had to do was have random allies row food over to the city's western lake harbor. Now, this wasn't a perfect solution, but it did mean the Crusaders would be forced to pair their blockade of the city with head-on assaults. The day after Butumitis was ejected from the city, the Army of the Cross realized why the Turkish garrison had changed its mind when two Turkish spies were discovered in the camp. I'll let Albert of Aachen tell this tale. Remember that he refers to Kilij Arslan ibn Suleiman as just Suleiman, his father's name. Kilij Arslan means lion sword in Turkish, by the way, or literally sword lion. Anyway, quote, When Suleiman heard of the arrival of so many warlike men, he came out of the fortress of Nicaea to enlist the aid of Turks and Gentiles. He exerted himself for many days until he had brought together 500,000 fighting men and knights in armor from the whole of Romania. When he had collected and briefed them, word of the siege of Nicaea and the army of Christians was conveyed to his ears, and that a number exceeding 400,000 by many thousands had encamped there. This news so astonished him that along with all the men he had recruited, he altered his route and went through the mountains towards Nicaea to see if from this vantage point he might see whether as many thousands as he had heard had truly gathered there, and from which direction he might safely attack them. At last, on the advice of his men, on the fourth day of the siege, Suleiman told two of them to investigate the strength and movements of the Christian army, under the false pretense of being Christians like the pilgrims. And they were to submit reports to the guard of the citadel and the defenders of the city of Nicaea, in this way. You may be sure that Suleiman, the prince and lord of our city, sent us to you, so that you would retain constant hope of his assistance and not be inspired with terror by these troops besieging the town, who are exhausted by their long journey and have come into exile here, 
and will be reckoned as fools, whom Suleiman will carry off to the same punishment and martyrdom as he did previously the armies of Peter, and he is ready in the very near future to come to your assistance with a strong force numbering countless thousands. The men received Suleiman's missive and were sent off in advance, making their way through familiar and out-of-the-way places towards the lake, which prevented a complete blockade of the city, to see if they could possibly sail secretly across to those defenders of the town and make known those things which Suleiman had charged them to, how Suleiman had formed his division and would attack the pilgrims in a short while, and that the entire force of Turks should burst out of the city gates, and in this way, with their resolution added to Suleiman's, they would wipe out the people of God. But by God's will, these two who were sent ahead by Suleiman were captured and held by the Christian guards, who were spread out around to protect positions and paths, so that no trickery or force of the enemies could harm them. One of the spies was killed in the attack, the other was brought into the presence of the Christian princes. Bohemond, Godfrey, and the rest used threats of torture to force the man who had been caught to explain without any lies what was the reason he had come. He, moreover, terrified by the threats of so many excellent princes and realizing that his life hung in the balance, was insistently beseeching them for his life and safety with a tearful voice, a humble expression, and a continuous flood of tears, trembling in every limb, and he promised he would reveal the truth of the matter and that it would improve the safety of all their people. In fact, he confessed that he had been sent by Suleiman, who was encamped on the mountain ridges with a countless tribe, and so close, he claimed, that they might expect to meet him in battle on the next day at about the third hour, and, because of his report, to be able to guard against his tricks and sudden assaults. The spy even asked to be held in custody until the hour he had said, at which time the truth of the matter and Suleiman's attack would be proven. If, however, any of these things did not happen, he had no wish for his life to be spared, but wanted to die by being beheaded. He even urged with intense and very humble prayers that he might receive baptism into the Christian faith and take communion with the Christians according to Christian law. But he sought this more out of fear of the death he thought awaited him than for any love of the Catholic faith. At last, the hearts of the army's commanders were softened by the man's pitiable weeping and excessive pleading, and his promise of Christianity. And taking pity on him, they granted him his life. But all the same, he was sent into the custody he was asking for. From that moment on, the whole army of Christians was made aware of the need for keeping watch. Night and day, they were at the ready with arms and equipment right up to that time when they had learned from the prisoner's claim that Suleiman's irresistible forces would come seething out of the mountains. End quote. Now, at this point, the army was still incomplete. Raymond of Saint-Gilles was still on his way to Nicaea. Messengers were dispatched to him, telling him to hurry the fuck up, which he did. He arrived only a day later, on May 16th, and began to set up along the southern side of the city. Godfrey had already set up on the northern side, and the Normans, led by Tancred and Bowman, were on the eastern side. As Raymond was positioning his troops, Keelage Arslan's forces came howling out of the hills. The anonymous author of the Gesta Francorum described this conflict in his trademark laconic fashion. Quote, 
The Count of Sanji came from the other side of the city, and protected by divine grace and resplendent in his earthly armor, at the head of his army, encountered the Turks, who were advancing against our men. Shielded on all sides by the sign of the cross, he fell upon them fiercely and drove them back. They took to flight, leaving behind many dead. But the auxiliary Turks came to the aid of the rest, full of joy and exulting in certain victory, carrying with them ropes with which they would bind us and lead us off to Khorasan. They came rejoicing and slowly descended from the height of the mountain. But all those who came down had their heads cut off by the hands of our men. And by means of a sling, our men hurled the heads of the dead into the city in order to spread fear among the Turks. End quote. It's interesting that the Gesta Francorum, sometimes taken to be little more than Italo-Norman propaganda, credits Raymond of Saint-Gilles with having saved the day. His account lines up with Albert of Aachen, though, who, despite not being there, has a few more perhaps made-up details for us. Quote, The Count, when he learned that Suleiman's attack was so close, delayed no longer, but hastened his journey through all the hours of that night, and at the first hour of day, when the sun was already shining fully on the earth, he arrived with the Bishop of Le Puy. In full force, with a company of cavalry and infantry, bearing standards of different colors and designs, armed with hauberks and helmets. The Count's tents were only just being pitched, when at about the third hour, Suleiman came down from the heights of the mountains and all his company, who had formed battle lines, poured down along the different footpaths, like the sand of the seashore. All of them very strong men, and very provident in war, heavily armed with hauberks and helmets and golden shields, and bearing before them in their hands very many standards of amazing beauty. About 10,000 of them, all archers, led the way in the first line down into the valley of Nicaea, carrying in their hands bows of horn and bow, fully drawn for shooting and all of them were mounted on horses, which were very swift of movement and very skilled in warfare. <laughs> Thus Suleiman and his men descended, striving to burst in with a charge through the gate of the town, which was guarded by Count Raymond blockading it. But they were repulsed strongly and overcome by this same Count and by Baldwin, the Duke's brother, who attacked from the front. In this horror of cruelest warfare, the bishop was hurrying between the companies, and his speech comforted the people in this way. O oh, race which has been dedicated to God, you left everything for the love of God, riches, fields, vineyards, and castles. And now everlasting life is at hand for you. Whoever dies in this conflict is to be as a martyr crowned. Without hesitation, attack these enemies who oppose the living God. And by God's gift, you will achieve victory this day. After this urging to action, Payen of Garland, steward to the King of France, Guy of Possess, Tancred, Roger of Barnville, Robert of Flanders, and Robert, Prince of Normandy, came to the assistance of their brothers in Christ without delay, galloping swiftly to and fro through the midst of the battle lines, 
and inflicting deadly wounds. Duke Godfrey and Bowman did not curb their horses, but let them have their heads and flew through the midst of the enemy, piercing some with lances, unsaddling others, and all the while urging on their allies, encouraging them with manly exhortations to slaughter the enemy. There was no small clash of spears there, no small rigging of swords and helmets heard in that conflict of war, no small destruction of Turks was wrought by these outstanding young knights and their allies. Since by God's grace, this victory rested with the Christian army, Suleiman and his men fled back to the mountains, no longer daring to join battle with God's people in this siege. From that day, Christ's faithful showed every mercy towards the messenger of Suleiman's they had captured, because they had found out he was faithful and true in his promise, and he was singled out and especially prized among the households of the highest leaders. The Christians cut off the heads of the dead and wounded. And as a sign of victory, they brought them back to their tents with them, tied on the girths of their saddles, and they returned with joy to their fellows, some of whom had been left in the tents around the city, to stop those shut up inside from getting out. When the storm of this first battle had settled around Nicaea, they threw the cut-off heads of the Turks inside the city walls to frighten the leaders of the fortress and the guards of the walls. Then a thousand Turks' heads were gathered in carts and sacks and loaded on wagons, and they took them down to Civitat and thus they were sent to the emperor of Constantinople. When the emperor saw so many heads of his enemies and of the soldiers of Suleiman, whose unjust force had caused him to lose the city of Nicaea by a trick, he rejoiced very greatly in this triumph of the faithful, and he decreed that they should receive a great reward for their labor of war. And so he sent a considerable sum of money, purple clothing of various kinds, and all sorts of supplies in mules and horse carts to reward every one of those responsible. At the same time, he bestowed countless victuals and granted a most generous facility for buying and selling everywhere in his kingdom. On imperial orders, sailing merchants were striving to race across the sea with ships full of rations, corn, meat, wine, and barley and oil. They dropped anchor at the port of Civitat, where crowds of the faithful procured all sorts of provisions to revive bodies formerly oppressed by enforced fasting. As they enjoyed and rejoiced in this abundance of food, they agreed and confirmed that they would not depart until the city was overcome and taken and might be restored into the emperor's power. For they had promised with an oath not to keep any part of the emperor's kingdom, no fortresses, no cities, unless by his wish or gift. End quote. So Albert adds a lot of details here. Like I said, some of them probably made up, but more or less coincides with Anonymous in saying Raymond of saint led the initial charge against the Turkmen. However, he takes more time to credit other leaders as well, especially some that he would have been familiar with from the region of Lorraine. Based on their descriptions, it seems Kilajarslan had come from the southern hills, where he would have had a clear view of the basin surrounding Nicaea, and had chosen to attack before the Provençals had had time to finish setting up. Raymond of saint was able to repel him regardless. 
Albert also takes some time to mention how the emperor received the news of their victory. The gist of what he says is actually corroborated by Anna Komnini, who recounts the battle along similar lines and then says, quote, The Celts won a glorious victory. The heads of many Turks, they stuck on the ends of spears and came back carrying these like standards, so that the barbarians, recognizing from afar what had happened and being frightened by this defeat at their first encounter, might not be so eager for battle in the future. So much for the ideas and actions of the Latins. The sultan, realizing how numerous they were, and after this onslaught made aware of their self-confidence and daring, gave a piece of advice to the Turks of Nicaea. From now on, do just what you consider best. He already knew that they preferred to deliver up the city to Alexios than to become prisoners of the Celts. End quote. As all the sources indicate, after the battle, defeated, Hilijarslan fled south. He would not be returning to Nicaea. And apart from some light skirmishes, there would be no further interruption of the siege. A few weeks after the battle, on June 3rd, the northern French forces under Stephen of Blois and Robert Kurthose arrived. Oh, and the Turkish spy, by the way, seems to have been rightfully horrified by all the beheadings and parading with Turkish heads on lances. Albert recounts that he was indeed baptized as a Christian, but then defected. Quote, when he saw the victory of the Christians and most cruel slaughter of the Turks, that prisoner of whom we spoke earlier, despairing of his life and intending to escape the yoke of Christianity, one day saw a very clear opportunity through the carelessness of the guard and flew across the entrenchment of the city walls with a nimble-footed leap. He called incessantly and pleaded with the Turks who were on the other side of the walls and at that moment enjoying a rest from warfare. To help him. At once, they let down a rope from the walls into the hands of the false and fleeing pilgrim, and soon he was hanging on it and clinging to this with his hands, and they pulled him up inside the walls, making a lot of shouting and noise inside and outside. Yet not one of the Christians dared to follow or detain the fugitive, because the Turks were attacking with javelins from above. End quote. With the threat of attack from Kilijarslan temporarily abated, it was at this point that efforts to topple the city's walls intensified. Various projects had already been attempted, relying primarily on an assortment of siege machinery and devices. There were stone-throwing catapults known as manganels or manganellas. These had been invented in China around the 4th century BC and had spread across Eurasia over the centuries. They had reached Europe primarily via contact with Arab engineers. Manganels relied on levers and manpower instead of torsion, which made them easier to build and less finicky. That easier to build bit is actually key. Don't imagine any complex trebuchets or anything like that. These manganels likely chuck stones weighing about 5 kilos, which certainly wouldn't be fun to have hit you, but wasn't about to bring down the walls of Nicaea. The idea was to use the mangonels to scare off the city's defenders, while the besiegers physically dismantled the walls with picks and axes. Nicaea, after all, had not only a garrison of trained archers, but also ballistae mounted on the walls. Basically, large crossbows which hurled rocks and crushed more than one franc during the siege. As we heard in the opening, the defenders also seemed to have had a substance not unlike Greek fire a combination of oil and grease, which could be lit, 
on fire. To protect themselves from these assaults, the besiegers used a variety of cover techniques. The simplest were known as mantlets, just panels of wood, basically. The most complicated were siege towers, huge structures that could have battering rams suspended within them, as well as archers to provide additional cover. In the middle were what are known as penthouses, similar to the mantlets but built out of logs and often mounted on wheels. Underneath the protection afforded by a penthouse, besieging forces could chip away at a wall. But these contraptions could be difficult to build. The materials, for one, would have to come from somewhere nearby, and that often meant scavenging for them. Afterwards, despite the simplicity of the design, anything more complicated than a light mantlet required what at the time would have been relatively expert use of tools. If mistakes were made when constructing something like a siege tower or a penthouse, the results could be deadly. Albert of Aachen tells us about the construction of something like a penthouse, which was apparently nicknamed Wulpush, the fox. Quote, One day, while most of the prince's piles of wood and siege engines were placed close to the walls of Nicaea, Henry of Esch and Hartman, one of the more important counts of Swabia, constructed a fox out of oak beams at their own expense. Around it in a circle, they interwove a secure palisade so that they could endure the Turks' heaviest blows with close combat weapons and all kinds of throwing spears. And thus, staying inside it, safe and sound, they might penetrate the city by attacking it bravely. While at length this fox apparatus was being completed to the last detail with workmanship and bindings, some 20 soldiers of the aforementioned princes, wearing armor, were stationed under that same cover of the fox. But on account of the great surge of men and the strain applied next to the walls, the rampart not being level, the shelter subsided and was not checked by a push in the right place or by a lever pull. And so the beams, the uprights, and all the bindings came to pieces and in a matter of moments crushed the men who were hiding inside it. Hartman and Henry, grieving and uttering a great lamentation for the fate of their men, buried the dead honorably with a funeral. But they could not help being a little glad that they had not perished with their men in this sudden suffocation. End quote. Hartman, by the way, was one of the nobles who'd been with Count Emiko at Mainz and had participated in the massacres of Jews there. The fact that Albert mentions the fox was built at Henry and Hartman's expense is also significant. It was at Nicaea that the arrangement we discussed last time came into usage, a council of lords, and a common fund for certain expenses, and an agreement on how loot would be dispersed. This was likely in response to the evident organizational chaos that reigned prior to this setup. Henry and Hartman likely invested in the construction of this fox because they figured it would gain them possession of the city, perhaps to the detriment of the other armies. This sort of mentality made the siege less of a collaborative venture and more like a competition. This aspect would never completely disappear, as late as the siege of Jerusalem, we'll see competition between various forces of the crusading army. But though there would be some light skirmishes between the contingents, it would never boil over into full-on dedicated conflict. And we can thank the council as well as this loot-sharing mechanism for that. After recounting the failed experiment Henry and Hartman had backed, Albert relates Raymond of Saint-Gilles' attempt, for which he had another penthouse built, 
this one known as a testudo tortoise. The tortoise seems to have been better built than the fox, at least, because Raymond was able to use it in various assaults against the city walls, including the attempt we heard about in the opening. But there was still an issue. As I mentioned, the city was still being resupplied via shipments across the lake. So a plan was devised. The Romans agreed to carry ships overland to the lake in order to patrol the city's western flank and completely cut it off. Whose plan this was depends on who you ask. The Latin sources credit the Latins, and Anna credits her genius father. So, flip a coin, I guess. With the city now completely surrounded, surrender was imminent. A day or two after the ships arrived, Kilij Arslan's wife attempted to escape by boat with her two sons, but was captured. Now the writing was really on the wall. With his wife captured, the Turkish garrison had no reason to expect future aid from Kilij Arslan. They were truly on their own. On June 19th, the Turks surrendered, and Nicaea was handed over. But here we start to get into a bit of controversy, because the city was not handed over to the crusading army, but to a representative of the emperor. By now, Manuel Butumitis had been joined by a fella named Tatikios, who we've already talked about. Tatikios was of either Arab or Turkish background. He was a slave, a eunuch actually. It seems he had been brought up alongside Alexios, and the two were close friends. Some of the Latin sources indicate his nose had been cut off at some point, and he wore a metal prosthetic where his nose would be. This could have been a serious punishment, but it's not clear if the description is actually true, or if the cutting of his nose had even been done as a punishment, even if the description is true. It could have also been some sort of accident. So, William of Tyre, who I'll remind you is a historian from the Kingdom of Jerusalem writing decades later and using many of the same sources we've been using, the Gesta Francorum and Albert of Aachen, Raymond of Aguilet, as well as no doubt some sources that have been lost to time. He was born around 1130, so he probably met some of the first crusaders. They would have been 50 or 60 years older than him. I was born in the early 90s, for example, and I've met people who were around doing shit in the 60s. Just from oral histories, I could probably describe some of the major events of the era. Obviously, William of Tyre took the time to research everything that had gone on. I mention this in part to convince you of William's credentials here, but also to highlight the point that his history of the First Crusade has tons of hindsight. But I actually view that as a good thing. See, William's history is written from the perspective of a Latin Jerusalemite, some 70 years after the founding of the kingdom. It goes a long way towards explaining what the fallout was of the events that took place in Nicaea and elsewhere, particularly with regard to the relationship between the Franks and the Romans. So keep all that in mind. Now, William describes Tatikios in the following way, quote, A certain Greek, Tatikios by name, a close confidant of the emperor, had joined our camp. He was a wicked and treacherous man whose slit nostrils were a sign of his evil mind. Our leaders had asked for a guide to render their journey safer, and by imperial command, he had been assigned as our future comrade and guide. He was chosen not only because he was said to have a thorough knowledge of the localities, but also because the emperor relied greatly upon his malice and unscrupulous duplicity. With some of his own forces, he had joined our leaders, that there might be a goose to cackle loudly among the swans, and an evil snake 
among the eels. He reported to the emperor everything that took place on the expedition, and to every remark made by anyone, he gave a sinister meaning. In return, he received from his master, through frequent messengers who went back and forth between them, outlines of plans directing his nefarious schemes. End quote. Yeah, no love lost there. Keep that entirely unbiased description in mind, because now we're turning to William's description of the surrender of Nicaea. With the city surrounded, Keely Jarslin's wife and children captured, the tower falling, and their harbor cut off by Roman ships, the Turkish garrison had no choice but to surrender. However, they seem to have figured out relatively quickly that they did have a choice in the question of who to surrender to. William says, quote, In utter distrust of their own strength, the citizens of Nicaea sent a deputation to the chiefs, begging them to grant a truce for the purpose of arranging for surrender. Now Tatikios, that extremely shrewd man of whom I have spoken, had foreseen that the citizens would wish to abandon their own defense. Accordingly, he had already called a meeting of the principal men of the city and advised them, in the event of a surrender, to honor the emperor. He pointed out that the army of pilgrims now before the city was hastening on to other affairs. It was only incidentally that these people had engaged in the siege, and in passing, as it were, had turned aside from their main objective. The emperor would always be near them. On his praiseworthy clemency, they might wholly rely and ever hope for more prosperous affairs. Hence, it would be wise, on the surrender, to give the preference to the emperor rather than to an unknown people of a barbarous race. The capitulation, which they could not avoid, would then be made to him. Thus, through their aid, the emperor would recover the city of which, with injustice, he had been deprived recently, through the violence of the Turk. By these arguments and others of similar import, the assembled citizens were persuaded to consent. On condition that their safety be guaranteed, they elected to resign the city, their persons, and all their possessions into the hand of the emperor. End quote. Despite his bias, I find William's account of Tatikius' arguments, at least, very convincing. It definitely sounds like Alexius' style of diplomacy. If anything, William's account makes the Byzantines seem less duplicitous than Anna's account. Because she says, quote, The enemy were panic-stricken by the imperial standards and the trumpets of Butumitis, who chose this moment to inform the Turks of the emperor's promises. The barbarians were reduced to such straits that they dared not even peep over the battlements of Nicaea. At the same time, they gave up all hope of the sultan's coming. They decided it was better to hand over the city and start negotiations with Butumitis to that end. After the usual courtesies, Butumitis showed them the chrysobol entrusted to him by Alexios, in which they were not only guaranteed an amnesty, but also a liberal gift of money and honors for the sister and wife of the sultan. These offers were extended to all the barbarians in Nicaea, without exception. With confidence in the emperor's promises, the inhabitants allowed Butumitis to enter the city. At once he sent a message to Tatikios. The quarry is now in our hands. Preparations must be made for an assault on the walls. The Celts must be given that task too, but leaving nothing to them except the wall fighting round the ramparts. Invest the city at all points, as necessary, and make the attempt at sunrise. 
This was in fact a trick to make the Celts believe that the city had been captured by Butumitis in fighting. The drama of betrayal carefully planned by Alexios was to be concealed. For it was his wish that the negotiations conducted by Butumitis should not be divulged to the Celts. End quote. She then goes on to detail how Butumitis entered the city, seized control, and by cover of night, snuck the leaders of the Turkish garrison away to Roman hands, before the Latins could storm the city and kill them all. The Latin chronicles, however, don't mention any of this subterfuge. They simply say that the Turks surrendered to the emperor, who showed them clemency and didn't allow the city to be sacked by the crusaders. William of Tyre explicitly says that the leaders of the army agreed to this. After relaying what he says Tatikios had offered to the Turks, he says, quote, This proposal was not unsatisfactory to the Christian leaders also, since their whole purpose was in truth directed toward a far different end. Nor was it their intention to linger long in Nicaea. They hoped, however, that in accordance with the terms of the agreement, the spoils of the city would be given to the army as compensation for the hardships and losses which it had suffered. Before they would negotiate surrender or agree to satisfy the wishes of the citizens in that respect, however, all those from the army of Peter the Hermit, who had been taken prisoners by Kilij Arslan at the fortress of Civitat, and also those taken by the citizens during the siege, were restored to the army. Then, with the acquiescence of the chiefs and the consent of the people as well, envoys were sent to the emperor with the following message. The Christian army and its leaders have labored faithfully in the siege of Nicaea for love of the name of Christ. By their earnest and persistent efforts, with the help of God, they have compelled that city to surrender. We earnestly beseech your serene highness, therefore, not to delay to send to these parts some of your principal men with a force sufficient to hold the city, which has been surrendered for the honor of your name. They must also arrange for the transference of a great number of captives, for as soon as the city has been delivered to your highness, we wish to proceed immediately on the pilgrimage, which, by the authority of God, we have undertaken." This message filled the heart of the emperor with joy and gladness. He at once sent to Nicaea certain members of his own retinue, on whose fidelity and diligence he could rely, to receive and fortify the city. The envoys were directed to seize as the property of the emperor all the substance of the captives, in gold and silver, and in furnishing of every kind. To the commanders, the monarch sent immense gifts in the hope of gaining their goodwill. Moreover, he thanked them heartily both by dispatches and verbal messages, for their honorable services and the great increase that had come to the empire through their efforts. But the people and men of second rank were greatly incensed. They too had worked valiantly in the siege of the city and had expected to repair the loss of their own property by the spoils taken from the prisoners and the rich store of goods found in the city itself. They now saw that their labors were not to receive a satisfactory reward. End quote. William also says that the emperor taking the spoils of the city went against the deal he had struck with the crusaders back in Constantinople. See episode 2.18. William says this broke their agreement. But as we talked about in episode 2.18, the Latin narrative always says this because it justifies the taking of cities like Antioch later on. 
William's account that the Crusaders agreed to let the Romans take the city peacefully is backed up by Raymond of Aguilet, who, I'll remind you, was traveling with Raymond of Saint-Gilles and might have actually been William's source for all this. Aguilet says, quote, The Turks therefore gave themselves up to the emperor, since they now expected no further aid and saw the army of the Franks increasing daily, while they were cut off from their forces. Alexius had promised the princes and the people of the Franks that he would give them all the gold, silver, horses, and goods within the city, and that he would establish there a Latin monastery and hospice for the poor Franks. Besides that, he would give to each one of the army so much of his own possessions that they would always want to fight for him. Accordingly, the Franks placing faith in these promises approved the surrender. And so when Alexios had received the city, he afforded the army an example of gratitude such that, as long as they live, the people will curse him and proclaim him a traitor. End quote. What's interesting to me is that neither William nor Aguilé indicate that the city was taken secretly or in some sort of ruse like Anna does. I'm inclined to agree with William and Raymond here, though I don't exactly buy that the deal with Alexios had guaranteed to hand over the spoils from one of his greatest cities to the Franks. As for why Anna would present this all as pulling the wool over Latin eyes, I have two theories. One is that the Franks were indeed fooled, but later chose to just present events as if they had known about it all along. But I don't really buy this, because mainly because, you know, I don't see how they would have found out. And if they did, I'm sure that they would have been even angrier about Alexios breaking their deal. Outright tricking the Franks is a definite violation of any agreement. My second theory is that Anna presents it this way because it makes her daddy seem even smarter and the Franks even more stupider. And hell yeah, I'm the, motherfucking princess. the Latin sources all mention wonderful gifts being given to the leaders. My instinct tells me that these were less like rewards and more like bribes. To ensure that the leaders of the Frankish army allowed the city to be taken by the Romans. There's no doubt that the Franks could have defeated the Romans in battle, and taken the city for themselves anyway. Anna says this was why the ruse was necessary. But it's possible that the Frankish leaders were in on this plan, and stood aside, because they had been paid off. This lines up with William's assertion that the men of secondary rank were incensed by this turn of events. Men of secondary rank lines up very nicely with the Juventus we talked about last time. These lesser knights seeking glory. I don't really see them going along with this plan. And that actually brings me to the account of Fulcher of Chartres, who as I mentioned last time, is often linked to the activities of the Juventus. He says, quote, While we were wearying the city with siege for five weeks, and it often terrified the Turks with our attacks, a council had meantime been held, and through ambassadors to the emperor, the inhabitants secretly surrendered to him the city, which was already hard-pressed by our forces and skill. End quote. Fulcher talks about the city secretly surrendering, but he also mentions a council, though he doesn't say who exactly participated in this council. Maybe the lesser knights, who Fulcher surrounded himself with, weren't allowed in the room where it happens, and were pissed off to find out that they had been robbed of their chance to sack the city. For Anna, it might have been better for her narrative to present all Franks in this way, leaving out the fact that certain higher-ups in the army were willing to let the spoils of the city fall by the wayside. 
And I mean, not only necessarily because they were paid off to do so, but maybe also because they would have been more aware of the need for peace with the Romans. Even though they had won, the Crusaders had struggled in their first skirmish with Turkish forces. They'd also no doubt realized the need for a solid supply train. Pissing Alexios off was not in their best interest whatsoever. There's also the question of their oaths to him, which definitely included an agreement to hand cities over to the Romans. But as William hints at, this secondary rank of knights might not have sworn such oaths. There's a chance that this even boiled over into some sort of conflict. Remember how angry the anonymous author of the Justifrank Quorum was regarding these oaths? It might have been at Nicaea that the consequences of whatever the leaders had agreed to became apparent to the bloodthirsty lesser knights we talked about last time. If there was a bit of conflict within the crusader camp over what exactly to do here, it explains what Alexios did next. Anna says after the city was taken, Alexios came to the crusaders with the goal of smoothing things over, but also the goal of making sure that lesser knights also swore oaths to him. According to Anna, he had a particular eye on forcing Tancred to submit. She relates this event in the following way, quote, The emperor was still in the vicinity of Pelicanum. He wished those counts who had not yet sworn allegiance to him to give their pledges in person. Written instructions were issued to Butumitis to advise all counts not to begin the march to Antioch before doing homage to the emperor. This would be an opportunity for them to accept even greater gifts. Hearing of money and gifts, Bohemond was the first to obey Butumitis' advice. He immediately counseled all of them to return. Bohemond was like that. He had an uncontrollable lust for money. The emperor welcomed them with great splendor at Pelicanum. He was most sedulous in promoting their welfare. Finally, he called them together and spoke. Remember the oath you have all sworn to me, and if you really intend not to transgress it, advise any others you know who have not sworn to take this same oath. They at once sent for these men, and all, with the exception of Tancred, Bohemond's nephew, assembled to pay homage. Tancred, a man of independent spirit, protested that he owed allegiance to one man only, Bohemond, and that allegiance he hoped to keep till his dying day. He was pressed by the others, including even the emperor's kinsmen. With apparent indifference, fixing his gaze on the tent in which the emperor held the seat of honor, a tent vaster than any other in living memory, he said, If you fill it with money and give it to me, as well as the sums you have given to all the other counts, then I too will take the oath. Paleologos, zealous on the emperor's behalf and finding Tancred's words insufferable and hypocritical, pushed him away with contempt. Tancred recklessly darted towards him, whereupon Alexios rose from his throne and intervened. Bohemond, for his part, calmed down his nephew, telling him it was improper to behave with disrespect to the emperor's relatives. Tancred, ashamed now of acting like a drunken lout before Paleologos, and to some extent convinced by the arguments of Bohemond and the others, took the oath. End quote. Anna says that Bohemond was the one who convinced the others to return to the emperor and make sure everyone was all oathed up. She credits this to his greed, but really, it's more likely that, as we've already talked about, Bohemond was the emperor's closest ally in the Army of the Cross. He was likely hoping to get that domestic of the East Post. 
The Latin sources don't really mention this episode, but that's unsurprising. No need to stress these oaths, if this even really happened, that is. Whatever the specifics, the end results were the same. Nicaea was brought back into the Roman Empire. Budumitis was named Duke of the city. The Crusaders, who had been the main instrument of the Turkish defeat, were deprived of the ancient city's spoils and the opportunity to kill more Christians. This may have upset some folks in the army, but definitely not everyone. It was really only in the aftermath of Antioch that Nicaea would come to be seen as a prequel to that diplomatic breakdown. That doesn't mean there weren't rumblings of frustration with how things had played out. During the siege of Antioch, a crusader by the name of Count Anselm of Ribmont wrote a letter to the Archbishop of Rheims, updating him on the army's progress. He deals with Nicaea in a few short lines. Quote, Beset moreover and routed in attacks by night and day, the Turks surrendered unwillingly on the 13th day before the Kalends of July. Then the Christians, entering the walls with their crosses and imperial standards, reconciled the city to God. And both within the city and outside the gates cried out, in Greek and Latin, Glory to thee, O God! Having accomplished this, the princes of the army met the emperor, who had come to offer them his thanks, and having received from him gift of inestimable value, some withdrew with kindly feelings, others with different emotions. End quote. Anselm seems to view the Greeks and Latins as one Christian army. A victory for the empire is a victory for the crusade. He doesn't seem to really care that they weren't allowed to sack the city, though he does acknowledge that some withdrew from the emperor with different feelings. Regardless, the peaceful nature of the city's capitulation did aid the pilgrimage aspect of this expedition. In a way that William of Tyre acknowledges, he says, quote, After the city had been surrendered in this fashion, a force sufficient for its protection was assigned. The wife of Kili Jarslin and her two sons, with a large number of other prisoners, were then led off to Constantinople. The emperor treated them not only mercifully, but even generously. It is said that he did this in the hope of winning the goodwill of the Turks and also that, by such favors, he might more easily rouse them against us. Then, if our armies chanced to lay a siege to another city, he trusted that the people would not be deterred by fear from making a similar surrender. End quote. And this was true. As I mentioned, following the capture of Nicaea, not only did other Anatolian cities begin to eject the relatively small Turkish garrisons within them, but the Turkish garrisons also surrendered quite easily to small Roman forces, which meant the Crusaders could advance deeper into Anatolia without fearing an attack from a fortress to their rear. But that doesn't mean their journey through Anatolia was free from any danger. Kili Jarslin was still out there, plotting his revenge. <laughs>
Next time on History of the Ultramare, the Crusaders are put to the test in a true pitched battle against the might of the nomadic horse archers of Anatolia. <laughs> <laughs>